Hi, everyone. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of Pep Talk, AASA's Education Policy Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Noelle Ellerson Ng, and I am AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. If it's your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. Here at Pep Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as education policy. All shows are available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note at nellerson at aasa.org or on Twitter at noellerson. Our latest episode, which you'll hear next, features Evan Marwell, founder and CEO of Education Superhighway, a nonprofit focused on upgrading the internet access in every public school classroom in America. At Education Superhighway, they believe that digital learning has the potential to provide all students with equal access to educational opportunity and that every school requires high-speed broadband to make that opportunity a reality. Their mission is simple, to upgrade the internet access in every public school classroom in America so that every student has the opportunity to take advantage of the promise of digital learning. Evan Marwell is founder and CEO of Education Superhighway. In this role, he oversees the operations, strategy, and all things, basically, at Education Superhighway as it relates to their work to upgrade internet access to every public school classroom. Evan, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here, Noelle. I know that you and Education Superhighway are always running about a dozen different projects at a time, and all of those are candles burning at both ends. So I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us and talk through some of these questions and to help our listeners learn more about Education Superhighway and your work that's so critical to school connectivity. Well, it's great to be here, Noelle, and and we're really appreciative at Education Superhighway of the partnership that we've had with AASA uh, in connecting schools and making sure that policy, particularly policy around E-rate, is what schools and school districts need in order to achieve the goals that we've set out and, and that others have set out in terms of giving them the opportunity to integrate digital learning in their classrooms. Absolutely. And I think it's a, a little bit of a no-brainer that you're here, but I think I would be remiss if we just move forward under the assumption that our members know who Education Super Highway is. I'm pretty sure our listeners and members have interacted or have been touched or had some sort of communication with Education Superhighway or your work, but they might not know that's what it was called. So for our listeners, can you give us your elevator speech on who Education Superhighway is, why you started the group, and what you're currently working on? Sure. So I started Education Superhighway back in 2012, uh, January of 2012, and it really came out of a recognition that digital learning had the opportunity to really transform classrooms around the country. Um, I had been fortunate enough to have a couple of experiences where uh, I saw both the promise of digital learning, but also the challenges that teachers were facing. And in particular, what I saw was that many teachers who wanted to start using technology in their classrooms really couldn't do it because they were frustrated by what we all know as that, that rainbow-colored spinning wheel showing up on the computers of their kids. And so I realized that if digital learning and technology were really going to help teachers and students transform the classroom, 
the first thing they needed was good internet access. And that meant they needed a high-speed connection to their school, and they needed a robust Wi-Fi network to every classroom so that they could implement one-to-one -one programs and other programs that leverage technology. So back in 2012, we decided to start Education Superhighway. And our mission, as you mentioned before, is really quite simple. It's to make sure that every classroom in America has high-speed internet access so that teachers and students can take advantage of technology to really transform the learning process. And we've been at it now for almost seven years, and I'm really happy to report that we've made tremendous progress in partnership with lots of organizations on both the policy side and the implementation side. And we've gone from where only 4 million students out of the 47 million public school students in America had good internet access back in 2013, where as of last year, uh, the start of this school year, 45 million students now have good internet access in their classrooms. So that's an increase of, of, of almost 41 million students uh, that, that are now positioned so that their teachers can integrate technology into their pedagogy. And we've gotten there really by focusing on a couple of things. Number one, making sure that everybody knew where we stood. What we found is that data can really be transformative because you open people's eyes about who needs upgrades uh, and, and who's in good shape. Number two, making sure that we had the policy in place to support this. And that's been policy at both the federal level, particularly with the E-rate program, but also at the state level. And you know, I'm proud to say that over the last few years, uh, 50 out of 50 governors have signed on uh, to ensuring that their classrooms have high-speed broadband. And Did you 23 just say 50 of the out of 50? 50 out of 50. Yeah. yeah, we were we were at 49 out of 50, and then we finally got Governor Bevin in Kentucky to agree that this is an important thing. So we're <laughs> full set. Good job. Congratulations. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. And um, so we got them to sign on, and then 23 of them have put up a, com a, co a combined over 200 million dollars of funding to help subsidize the build out of high speed infrastructure to the schools in their states that didn't have it. So, so that's sort of been the second thing is getting the policy right. And of course, we didn't do this on our own. We, we had tremendous help from organizations like AASA and others, uh, especially at the federal level. And then the third thing that we've done is we've really focused on supporting school districts and getting the upgrades they need. And we've done that in two ways. One has been by uh, making sure that they had the information about what are the best deals out there. We have a website called compareandconnectk12.org where schools can see what every other school is buying for internet access, who they're buying it from, and how much they're paying. And it turns out when you give school districts that kind of information, they become really good buyers of broadband. And what we've seen happen over the last five years is that the cost of broadband for schools has dropped by over 85%. And that's meant that that's been a big driver of why we've gone from 4 million to, to 45 million kids that are connected. And then finally, the last thing that we've done to do this is we've actually provided technical assistance to school districts. 
we know that not every school district had the technical and procurement expertise to, you know, get the broadband that they need. In particular, uh, the school districts that needed to bring high-speed high infrastructure or new Wi-Fi networks to their school, many of them really needed some help. And so we, we've had a team here uh, of over 20 people that literally spends their time talking to school districts, helping them write good RFPs, teaching them about you know, what the options are out there, and then recruiting service providers to work with them so that they can get the infrastructure that they need. So it's been quite a journey for the last seven years, and uh, you know, we're really excited that uh, the goal is, is in sight, and, and we think that we will, uh, we will exceed 99% of the schools and students in America having high speed, good high-speed broadband so that they can use digital learning in their classrooms um, by the start of the 2020 school year. You know, from your lips to telecommunications companies and FCC and policymakers ears, because that is an ambitious goal. AASA would 110% be behind that. I think we'll get into it a little bit later, but we know that there's some very real obstacles that uh, relate to rural areas or high need areas in particular, but we'll never get anywhere near 99% if we don't at least start by aiming for 99%. So that work is critical. And I thank you, Evan. Um, so after that very detailed opening of your elevator speech, I'm tired from just listening to everything that you're working on, but <laughs> it goes to our working relationship. So I've known you most of my time at AASA and we cross paths in the E-rate and school connectivity arena. And when we look at the education superhighway mission and the goal of extending internet access to all classrooms, it begs a chicken and the egg question. The need and E-rate were there before education superhighway, but how much of education superhighway's work has helped keep the pressure on to continue to expand and support connectivity, especially in light of the 2014 modernization? Yeah, you're you're a hundred percent right. Like without E-rate, none of this uh, would be possible. E-rate e is such a critical program to America's schools and libraries, and uh, thank goodness it was already in place. Now, when we came on the scene in, in 2012, you know, E-rate was there. It was a 2.4 billion dollar a year program. Um, it was the the single largest funder of technology and technology-related services for schools. I mean, it really has uh, had a huge impact on America's K-12 schools. That being said, you know, E-Rate was started in 1996. And by 2013, E-Rate really needed a tune-up. Um, you know, when E-Rate started, it was focused on bringing connectivity to every school building. And we really had entered, when we entered the 20th century, 21st century, we really needed to shift that focus from access, because 98% of schools had some kind of internet access, to capacity. Because if schools really wanted to take advantage of what digital learning had to offer in the classroom, they needed a lot more bandwidth. And you know, the FCC started this all, and, and they said, you know what, we, we need to set some minimum standards for, for connectivity, 100 kilobits per student of internet access, a scalable fiber optic connection that allows it to grow from there, and Wi-Fi in every classroom. And, um, and, we, need, and it, we needed to be 
we need the program to be updated and for schools to have a new set of goals. So E-rate's been the key. So where does Education Superhighway come in? Look, I like to think of our work as we've been a catalyst. Um, you know, we, we have helped on several fronts. So number one was E-rate modernization. You know, we spent the first two years of our existence really helping make the case for E-rate modernization uh, by collecting data on what was happening and, and what, what the needs were. Um, then second, we were a catalyst by getting states involved. Why was it important to get states involved? Because we really needed to find a way uh, to have leadership set and communicate these new goals. You know, the FCC is great in terms of they provide the funding, but they don't really talk to school districts, as you know, that often. So that's why we started partnering with organizations like AASA and COSIN and, and CETA and ISTE and others to sort of get the word out. But what we really found was most effective was getting governors involved because governors have this huge soapbox and the state departments of education have really good relationships, uh, at least from a communications point of view, with their school districts. And so the second thing we did is we were a catalyst for getting uh, getting governors involved. And then finally, I'd say the third thing that we were a catalyst about was we were a catalyst for increasing the activity of, of service providers uh, in the E-rate market. You know, before I was uh, running Education Superhighway, um, I was in the investment business and I, I was responsible for, uh, you know, investing in telecom and cable companies, among other things. And in, my, in all the years that I did that, uh, I never once heard of E-Rate. And it was, it was really funny this morning, actually. I was, I was reading an investment report about uh, one of the service providers, a company called Zayo, who, who serves a, a tremendous number of schools. And the investment analyst was talking about how E-Rate was going to be an important source of of revenue growth for Zaire this year. And I thought, you know, we've come a long way when E-Rate is now into the, 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 the business vernacular. So getting those service providers involved and really invested in making sure that schools had what they need, that, that's sort of the third way that, that we've really been a catalyst. That's a lot of catalyzation going on. It sounds almost like a chemistry experiment, Evan, but it's all yeah. very, very good because <laughs> it's super relevant. I think there's strong parallels between the connection you make to the importance of governors, but that has to have a trickle down effect because so as the governor goes, so too doesn't that inform a little bit the willingness of the state legislature to also think about what it might be able to do around connectivity specifically or infrastructure more generally because broader infrastructure can bolster and support the specifics of connectivity in classrooms, correct? Absolutely. State, state legislatures have, have played a critical role in, in, in many states. As I mentioned earlier, 23 states passed legislation putting up additional, broadband, uh, additional funding uh, yep. for broadband to schools. And, and the legislatures understood that not only would that connect that, their schools, but this was an opportunity to actually bring high-speed broadband infrastructure out into the communities so that ultimately the entire community could get connected. So we're gonna go from 99% of classrooms to the community, but this is actually an underlying goal of the broader Universal Service Fund programs. It's about getting connectivity to high need populations in areas 
that ultimately means the broader American community has access to the connectivity that it needs to just do day-to-day -day functions. And in our instance, in our little edge lane of E-rate, it's the connectivity that our nation's schools and libraries need to provide the educational opportunity that has to be provided to today's students and learners and the teachers who need to administer that instruction and support. So it all goes back to that. Okay. That's absolutely in, right. Right. I want to get into some of the specifics though, because if I'm not mistaken, the application window for E-rate FY19 just closed last week. And right now, AASA is in the middle of a collaborative effort with Education Superhighway to highlight for schools how much of the E-rate program remains underutilized. And what I just said pales in comparison or almost seems at odds with this very accurate narrative that you shared about how much connectivity is growing, how many classrooms we're in, how many districts are connecting. But mere connectivity doesn't mean you're leveraging the full opportunity of broadband connectivity or the opportunity that was afforded when E-rate was modernized in 2014. So that's what I want to talk through. Let's walk through and help our listeners understand how and why much of the E-rate program remains underutilized. So the first question, Evan, is what is the reality of E-rate applications that gives us concern? The under application, the unused category $2. Why are our groups concerned when seemingly applications are rosy? Yeah, so, so I think just to put this in perspective for folks, um, the, the amount of funding available under E-rate is about $4 billion a year. And uh, last year, and again this year, it looks like the total requests for E-rate dollars are going to come in at around $2.9 billion. So, so, there's, so when you say we're, we're, we're not using the program as much as we could, you know, it's, it's almost by a factor of 25%. Um, so, why is that? Well, we think there are uh, a couple of reasons for it. So, so number one has been the uh, incredible decline in the cost of broadband. And so, you know, the amount of money that people thought they were going to have to spend in order to meet the goals that the FCC had laid out um, has really been helped or reduced by the, that 85% that decrease in the cost of broadband. Now, that really leads us to one of the areas that I think is why we're concerned that people aren't taking advantage of the E-rate program. You know, the FCC during E-rate modernization set this goal of 100 kilobits per student of internet access um, in 2014. But they also said that by 2018, every school should be at one megabit per student. Now, why did they say that? Because what the FCC was envisioning was how much internet access and broadband was gonna be needed in schools so that we could have a scenario where every teacher could use technology in their classroom every day if that's what they wanted to do. And what we found is that one megabit per student goal really is what you need to make it so that everyone in a school has the opportunity to use technology every day in their classroom. So one of the ways that the program's not being utilized is school districts need to get to that one megabit per student objective. And there's plenty of money available. And in fact, one of the interesting things is 
we think that roughly three quarters of school districts can get to one megabit per student without actually spending any more money. We need to make sure that they take the maximum use of the E-rate program and those funds that are still available to get there. So that's number one. Number two is what you referred to before with category two. Um, as most of your listeners know, uh, when the FCC modernized the E-rate program in 2014, they gave every school a $150 per student budget over a five-year period to put Wi-Fi in every classroom. And the reality is that we've underspent that budget quite significantly. And so one of the things that we've been worried about and, and the thing that you, know, you and I have been working on this last year has been to make sure that school districts take advantage of that, that money. And in particular, we were focused this last year on about 3,500 school districts that either hadn't used any of their category two funds or who were in the fifth year of their budget and were gonna lose whatever they didn't use this year. And so that represented a tremendous amount of funding. And so together, uh, along with IFTI and, and a few other organizations, we did a lot of outreach to school districts to, to remind them, hey, this money's there, and if you don't use some of it this year or finish using it this year, you're gonna lose it. So I think those have been the two big things that have driven the fact that, uh, that we're about a billion dollars a year of extra capacity in the E-rate program. And a, a billion, you just think about what a billion could do if it was able to get to those schools. I mean, I think there's some good reasons why some of these schools are underutilizing. I think part of what we see is there's a pragmatic aspect to our listeners, to our superintendents of, well, what we have works and not necessarily realizing that just because you're able to make it work means it's all that you deserve or that your educational programs need. The other thing is, even with this modernization and the money on the table, there's still a matching element. And we need to be very real about that matching element, even if you have some of the bigger discounts. For a big broadband project, those costs can be a sizable portion of an overall budget, and that out-of-pocket cost can be very real. So all of that also contributes to this billion dollars being left on the yeah. table. But we're, we're just hopeful that we can continue through our collaboration and this partnership in particular to get those E-rate applications up. So you touched on this a little bit, but Education Superhighway has some data that other groups don't have, and it's strong overlap or symmetry to data that the FCC and USAC have, but isn't always publicly available. So what are the details of the data that Education Superhighway is sitting on that's so relevant to this conversation? In part, if I'm not mistaken, to what's been able to help you bolster some of the changes with the governors and the state legislatures? Yeah, no, we, uh, we have made a very strategic investment in, in data as part of the work that Education Superhighway has done. And that data primarily is the data from E-rate applications. So early on in, in our work, um, it used to be that the information on E-rate applications about what schools were buying and how much they were paying from it for it uh, was not available to the public. And so we had to go out and literally spend eight months going around to school districts and asking them to tell us, hey, what were you spending your E-rate money on? Um, 
the, the importance of that information during E-rate modernization convinced the FCC that they should make that information public. So today we have a situation where every E-rate application is fully public so that you can see for every school, what are they buying, who are they buying it from, and how much are they paying. The challenge has been that it's not necessarily the cleanest data that comes out of USAC. And so we spend a tremendous amount of time um, cleaning that data and, and making sure that it's really accurate. And we do that for a couple of reasons. So one, it's to show governors how much they've accomplished and what they've got left to do. And what we've learned is that if you wanna get a, a policymaker motivated, showing them the data is super helpful. Number two, we've used that data to provide that price transparency that I talked about earlier on our Compare and Connect K-12 yep. website. And, and, and again, helping districts understand, wow, my service provider is offering this other district a much better deal than I'm getting. So when my contract comes up, I want that deal. And to your point earlier, you know, we've always recognized that it's hard for school districts to increase their budgets. But the good news is by using price transparency, they can get a lot more bandwidth for the same budget without really having to increase it. And then the final thing has been uh, around policy, as you suggested. Turns out when you're talking to a legislature, when you're talking to the FCC, when you're talking uh, to a governor, even when you're talking to um, you know, the Wireline Competition Bureau, data really helps make a case, a compelling case, and drive action. So that's why we've spent so much time focused on data. And we value the data. I mean, you look at what Education Superhighway does, and then you look at what AASA does, and we're a membership organization, and I think we do a little bit more explicit advocacy work, but we don't have the data that you have, and that's why we rely on working with groups like yours and also the data that we do have available because we don't want policy, nor do we support policy that doesn't have information behind it, that doesn't have facts and the data. And so it's a huge part of ensuring that we can document with purpose the achievements of the program and the successes of the program and how it does continue to matter to our schools. Okay. I had some other sub-questions there about our partnership, but you really wove them together. Good job. So I want to split <laughs> off and get actually more into the specifics of Education Superhighway. I think people would be surprised to learn how sizable your group is. So how big is your staff? How is your team organized? And how does each group contribute to the mission? Yeah, um, at our peak, Education Superhighway had about 70 people. We're down a little bit from that right now. Um, and uh, our team is basically divided up into a couple of groups. So first, you know, I talked about our strategic commitment to data uh, and making it available to others. Well, that means we need a lot of people who are data quality folks, we need data analysts, and we need software engineers so that we can create the programs and websites that make that data available. And that's really, uh, of our 70 people, that's, that's close to 30 of them. Um, second, we have our, our team that works with states and our team that works with districts. So our state team is responsible for managing all those relationships with those 50 governors who are working with us. And our district team is responsible 
for all of the outreach and support that we do to provide technical and procurement assistance uh, to um, school districts. And together, that's about another 30 people. So those are the sort of two big parts of our organization. Then we have a marketing team, uh, which is about six or seven people, and then just sort of some, some op internal operations and, and finance folks. And, and our marketing team really is, is critical, has been critical in, in our partnership together uh, with AASA, which has really been about outreach to school districts and making sure that they know about uh, the funding, the E-rate funding that's available to them, as well as the work that we've done on the policy side together. I actually didn't realize you had been closer to 70, so that was interesting to hear. Okay, so with this team of that you have right now and all these players, one thing that I noticed with fascination about Education Superhighway that is not the case here at AASA is that you navigate both federal and state policy work, sometimes to weave them together, sometimes to separate ends. So what were your biggest federal priorities in the last year, and what were some of your biggest state priorities? Yeah, so at the federal level, um, we've been focused on a couple of things. The, the first has been what we call delays and denials. Um, so about a year ago, we took a look at E-rate funding, particularly around funding for projects that required construction of new broadband infrastructure, what they call special construction. And what we noticed was that these projects were uh, getting put at the bottom of the pile for USAC's review of E-rate applications. And as a result, they were on average taking more than nine months to get approved which is significantly longer, over twice as long as a typical E-rate application. The other thing we noticed is that they were being denied at a much higher rate, in fact, almost seven times as much. Um, so these projects were getting denied at close to 30%, whereas overall E-rate applications were getting denied only around 4%. So we decided this was a real problem because if we wanted to close the fiber gap that existed out there, uh, and we'll talk more about this uh, a little later in terms of how that particularly affects rural schools. So we said like, look, this is our best tool we have combined with all that money those governors have put up in matching funds to make sure that every school has high speed broadband infrastructure. But, but if we're gonna deny 30% of these applications and we're gonna make them take a really long time, that's not helping. And so we said, you know, our first priority at the federal level for the last year has been to, to try and explain, understand why that was happening and get the FCC and USAC to take action to, to fix it. And I'm really pleased to say that over the last year, we've seen a dramatic improvement. Uh, in these things. The, the delays have come down significantly, and the denial rate is down to that 4% rate that's typical of the program as a whole. So we're very appreciative that, you know, the FCC and, and USAC heard, uh, they listened to the data, and, and they took action to fix it. But we're not done. There are still, you know, they're still getting delayed significantly more uh, particularly large projects that are being done by consortia, uh, particularly rural consortia. And so we need to make sure that those, those get fixed. The second big area that we've been focused on at the state level has been category two, 
Um, as you know, Noel, the uh, Category 2 program was on a five-year clock, and it was sort of a, a five-year experiment to see if it worked. And um, fortunately, the, the FCC's Wireline Competition Bureau uh, recently came out with a report saying that Category 2 has been pretty much an unquestioned success. Uh, and so we were super glad to see that, and uh, we're hoping that the FCC will now make the Category 2 program uh, permanent at, so that school districts can continue to rely on it as they need to upgrade their Wi-Fi networks going forward. And then at the state level, our policy work has really been focused on those matching funds uh, for fiber construction. Uh, there were a few states that we added that hadn't had matching funds before, you know, Illinois in particular. Uh, is, a, is a big deal because they have a lot of rural schools that still need to get connected uh, and a few others that needed to be sort of refreshed where they had put programs in place, the programs had expired and they needed to, to re-up them. So, so those have been our policy priorities uh, for the last 12 months for the most part. Evan, this takes me back to what I opened up with, this idea that you guys have about 12 different projects going at any given time. So one thing you touched on that I would put a pin in and say we could talk at length about is the conversation around what happens to Category 2 and making sure it's a program in perpetuity. 100% we agree because internal connectivity, that final, that beyond final mile just to the school, it's getting it to the classroom level. Now we have some thoughts about whether it should continue to be that formulaic one or have the cap on it, but absolutely we want to see that Category 2 program persist, and not just persist, but be funded, because that's actually what changed in 2014. Priority 2, as it was previously known, existed. They're just, we had run out of funding for it. So that cap increase breathed life into the program and that there was suddenly funding, and that's something we all want to see carry through. So Absolutely. I have one more specific question to Education Superhighway, but then we're going to get to the types of questions that I like to ask all of my podcast guests. They're a little bit more lighthearted, but they let our listeners get to know some of the more casual aspects of the people that I call colleagues and friends. So one more serious question, Evan. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. And this ties back to something I teed up earlier, rural. So Education Superhighway has done a really good job of representing the unique opportunities and obstacles facing rural schools when it comes to that connectivity. So what are some of the common obstacles that you've seen and what's one of the more impactful solutions that you've seen? Yeah, so the biggest challenge for rural schools is getting high-speed fiber, typically, infrastructure out to those schools. Um, the reality that many rural communities are faced with is that there just isn't enough business to justify service providers building networks out to these areas without some kind of subsidy. They, they just can't make a return on it. So, so that's really sort of the fundamental issue that rural schools and frankly rural communities deal with. Now on the flip side, what's really interesting is that in many ways, Rural schools and rural communities have the most to gain from high-speed broadband. And interestingly, when you look at uh, that, that FCC goal of getting to one megabit per student, it's actually the rural communities that already have gotten good infrastructure that are leading on that. So 50% of rural school districts already have one megabit per student of internet access as compared to 28% 
overall. So why is that? It's because they realize that to stay competitive for their kids with the educations that kids in suburban and, and urban communities are getting, where they have access to you know, more resources around extracurricular activities, more resources around being able to offer a full suite of classes. Many, many rural schools struggle to offer things like physics and, and, and chemistry. Um, they understand that technology and internet access can help level the playing field for them. So, so they've in some ways got the most to gain from technology, but then again, they're, they're struggling the most. And when we look at the data, what the data says is that over 80% of the schools that still don't have high-speed broadband infrastructure are in rural communities. So what have we seen uh, people do to, to solve that? Well, it's really been all about getting service providers to get creative about how can they bring high-speed infrastructure to those communities. And the key to that has really been these, the E-rate program's investment in special construction and governor's investment in special construction through those additional subsidies that we've, we've talked about. And as a result, we're seeing some amazing projects happen uh, in rural communities where they're building 10 miles of fiber to reach, reach school districts that never had it before or they're building literally hundreds of miles of fiber in tribal communities where they're connecting 17 or 20 different school locations, uh, in, as is going on in Arizona and New Mexico. So uh, there have been some fantastically great implementations that have happened as a result of this, but for sure, rural is, is the place that is still struggling the most. So that's, a lot for rural though because what you said that I'm really still rolling around in my head is so much of this common narrative is that it's high cost and most expensive and the hardest and maybe that's where more of the underserved is is rural but if I listen to you correctly at the same time while there are parts of that that are true it's also where you're seeing some more creative applications of the, the, the program creative solutions is that basically what you answered Absolutely. And you know, when, when you live in rural America, you've got to get creative if you want to support True that. Students. True that. I live in Washington, the D.C. area right now, and I grew up in upstate New York. And I thought that was rural until I started traveling with this job. And the resourcefulness and just the outside-the-box thinking to get a solution that you see, I, I guess it makes 100% sense that you would see education practitioners applying that as it relates to their broadband and connectivity needs. Yeah. And when you talk to the ones that have come up with creative solutions, the joy that they feel around the opportunities that they've been able to give the kids in their schools that they've been shut out from for so long is just palpable. That's one of my favorite thing about superintendents, so is, yes, they're leading a system. Yes, they have to be the boss. Sometimes it's not fun. But ultimately, if you get them talking about the kids, you see the teacher or educator they are at their core. And that's ultimately what they're doing everything for. They might have to change a staffing pattern. They might have to decide to reduce the number of transportation routes to support the costs related to expanded connectivity. 
but all of those decisions are made for the students they serve. And it's a really good reminder and really refreshing about why it is they do what they do and how lucky we are to have people like that running those systems. Absolutely. And the thing I can tell you is uh, my staff, when they go out in, into the field to sort of support school districts, um, you know, meeting with those superintendents and, and their staff, it, it, it's what brings it all home for us. It's what, you know, connects them to our mission and reminds us every time of why we're doing the work that we're doing. So we love them. Okay, we have only a few minutes left, but I do want to get to my favorite, more lighthearted question. So, Evan, we wouldn't be here with our connections to DC if I didn't talk a little bit of predictions in 2020. So, what are you expecting in 2019 as it relates to connectivity and policy at the federal and state level? So uh, I think the big thing I'm expecting is that we will see uh, the connectivity, the, the Category 2 program uh, made permanent. That, that's the thing that I'm really most excited for. Um, I'm also excited to see continued progress on delays and denials at, at USAC. And uh, also them making permanent this um, rule change that they just put in of, of making the amortization rule uh, waiver permanent. So, so those are the things that I'm excited about. Um, the thing I have to admit that I'm concerned about is the recent proposal um, by the uh, FCC to put a cap on the Universal Service Fund. And, you know, um, we can discuss all day long how much money is needed, but I think at the end of the day, what we really have to remember is these programs are there to help the people who need it the most. They're there to help students. They're how to, there to help library patrons. They're, they're there to help uh, folks in underserved communities um, to, to be on a level playing field. And you know, to, to put a cap on how much aid we're, we're willing to provide to achieve those objectives um, seems wrong to me. But even more importantly, the, the thing I'm most worried about is, if, is that if they do put a cap, it's going to pit our universal service programs against each other, uh, fighting for those dollars. And, and nothing good can, can come of that. So, so I'd say those, those, those are the things I'm excited about, and, those are the, and that's the thing I'm worried about. Well, and we have that 2020 application cycle to see if we can get the number of applications and the dollar amount up. So that's coming down the pike for the next year, too. Because, I mean, schools could start planning as early as now for what they want to apply for in 2020. Absolutely. We, we think most of them will take a break, given that they just filed their 471s uh, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, last week. But, uh, but you know, come May, uh, you know, we think there are going to be a number of schools that, that, that get started on the process. And I would encourage everyone to get started on the process. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to talk about 2020. It's going to be a big year. The election is sure to be all the news, but also Education Superhighway is sunsetting. Tell me what's next as you prepare to achieve your initial goal of connecting 99% of classrooms. Right. So uh, as I said at the beginning, I, I think we're on track to hit that goal of 99% connected by the start of the 2020 school year, but we're not done. So number one on our agenda is, is to make sure we get there. And, and that means making sure that we get to those last you know, rural schools predominantly that, that still don't have high-speed connections and, and working with their superintendents to, to make sure that they're on uh, a level playing field. 
There are two other things, though, that uh, we're going to do over the next 18 months. So one is, as we talked about earlier, our data has been really important uh, to both advocacy, but also to helping people get the upgrades that they need. And so when we, when we sunset, we want to make sure that that data stays available. So we're working on a, a product right now that uh, will be free to everybody, um, but that will make sure that our data stays available so that uh, state policy leaders can see which of their schools need to upgrade to get to that one megabit per student uh, goal so that they can use technology in every classroom every day. Um, and so that school districts can continue to have uh, the information they need to take to get the best deals for their budget, get the most broadband. That's the second thing. And then the third thing is, you know, there have been a bunch of um, lessons we've learned along the way uh, in this journey that we've been on for the last seven years. Um, things around how to work effectively with state government, uh, things around how to use data uh, to drive the mission of a nonprofit. And, and we want to make sure that we sort of capture those lessons and share them with the community so that others don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, and then finally, uh, of course, we've had an amazing team here at Education Superhighway, as I said, 70 people at our peak. Um, and, you know, we want to make sure that that team is well positioned to go out and, and work with other organizations and, and, and have the kind of impact that we know that they can bring. Now, that sounded a little bit like it could be an entree to a campaign platform. So I, I do have to ask you, Evan. If Evan Marwell were running for president, what would your platform be? And here, since we are all education all the time, you can just answer with your education platform. Well, I want to be clear. Evan Marwell is not running for president. <laughs> but if I were running for president, you know, I think I would focus on two things in education, and this won't surprise you. Um, the first is making sure that, that every teacher in every school has the opportunity to use technology in their classroom every day. Um, getting us to that one megabit goal, I think, is going to continue to be transformative um, uh, to our teachers and students as, as they move forward. But I think in addition to that, I would focus on investing in uh, school leaders and teachers so that they can figure out what is the best way for them to take advantage of technology in their classroom. You know, I think there are literally thousands of classrooms across this country that are doing incredibly innovative things uh, with technology that are really making a difference for students. And I, wanna, I would wanna spread that. And I think to spread that, we need to tell those stories and then we need to provide the professional development resources that our teachers and our school leaders and our district leaders need to be able to implement them in their classrooms. Evan, that makes you one of the few people not running for president. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have bad jokes all day long. It's the only type of humor I have. <laughs> no, I appreciate your patience in answering these lighter questions, but also the more substantive stuff, really helping me and our listeners understand not only what Education Superhighway is, but what your work and your passion is and how it's so critical and complementary the overall goal of connectivity, and I think you laid a very clear outline of why it is that our organizations work well together and how we're collaborating to support this broader push for connectivity. So thank you, Evan, again, for taking time to be with us today.
Well, it's been my pleasure and, and thank you for uh, AASA's partnership in all of this work. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in today and for giving us a listen. As a reminder, this is AASA's education policy podcast, Pep Talk, where we talk all things that could be vaguely related to education policy. Today's guest was Evan Arwell, founder and CEO of Education Superhighway. You can follow Evan online via the Twitters at emarwell, M-A-R-W-E-L-L. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to chatting with you next time.